1: nuivenison.com and use promo code bear for twenty percent off your first order. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.
0: A guy that introduced me to the Folsom site. He couldn't get excited about certain cultures because they used a lot of junk stone and their points were crude in course. The guy had been an engineer. He liked the Folsom point. To him, it was like, "No, that's a good people." Man. <laughs> it was kind of his attitude, wow. you know. This week on the Bear Grease
1: Podcast, we're on our fourth and final episode in our series on the Folsom archaeological site, and we're talking about stone points. We're in search of understanding the ancient, mysterious, and difficult process of fluting stone. We'll discuss the radical design and the mechanics of these stone points and infer some stuff about the culture of these people based on all that we have. These beautiful stone points that we call Folsom points. Of all their material possessions, these stones are the only thing that have outlasted the erosive nature of time. We'll be talking with a new guest, anthropologist Devin Pettigrew, who will walk us through the design of these points and the history of addle addles And one last time, we'll tap into the knowledge of Dr. David Meltzer and Steve Vernella. We dove in and went to the dadgum bottom of the river, and we're finally coming up for air as we'll discover the answer to our original question of why does any of this matter? The flutes on these points don't play any music, but they paint an incredible picture of who these people were.
2: I really doubt you're going to want to miss this one. If you think about like early Germanic flintlock rifles in the Americas, they were extremely well made. There was an art to them. They engraved mm-hmm. them. They didn't have to do all that stuff, right. but they could with Folsom They're just very concerned about, you know, making these points extremely well made. Somebody put a lot of extra time in that than they really needed to.
1: On this episode, we're going to look into the technology and design of the Folsom Stone Point. These points were first discovered in the Wild Horse Arroyo in Folsom, New Mexico, scattered amongst the remains of 32 bison antiquus. If you've been listening to this series, you know all this stuff. These bison were killed some 10,000 years ago by ancient human hunters, some of the first Americans. The technology of this point was radical in terms of its engineering and the reasoning of the ancient hunters to employ this risky style of point is a mystery. All the experts agree the design has utilitarian function, but the reward of that function came with great cost. And some believe there was more to the point than just in the field performance. Was it cultural? Was it spiritual? Or was it the tendency of early man, just like it is today? to push engineering to the furthest side of the pendulum before the system breaks. We'll never know the full answer, but we're in search of why they fluted these points. I feel pretty good about what we've learned regarding the events of this ancient hunt that we've been dissecting. We've covered a lot of ground while we've been in pursuit of our layman's PhD on Folsom. From George McJunkin, the former slave who found the site to the speculation on how the kill went down, to gourmet butchering, to who these ancient people were and how they lived. Along the way, we've been leaning on the insight of Steve Runella of Meat Eater. His insight and ability to ask some interesting questions have helped open a broader vista on this subject. Here's Steve opening up our conversation on the uniqueness of the Folsom points and the inferences that can be made about these people because of their craftsmanship.
0: The fineness of a Folsom point. It's the craftsmanship that goes into making a Folsom point where you make this like very perfect point. Every one of them kind of falls into a certain like, dimensional characteristics, certain shape. You do something really hard and make like, a point and then you do something like knock these a channel out of each face, running the length of the point, which has a very high failure rate. So even people now, like contemporary nappers, who try to experience it, it's hard. It's like to make the thing and knock the thing out, most are not gonna work. Just a, a delicate seeming, but probably very deadly thing. And it's so finely wrought and from such perfect stone that I think that adds a lot to the mythology of the Folsom Hunter. And to demonstrate, I mean, I, I used to be friends, he, he passed away, but a guy that introduced me to the Folsom site, his name was Tony Baker. He come from a long line of anthropologists and arrowhead hunters. He would talk about some cultures, just the projectile points. He didn't seem to like the culture. I don't mean in a way like judging them. He couldn't get excited about certain cultures because they use a lot of junk stone and their points <laughs> were, and their points were crude in course. And he he was making insinuations about who they were, their yeah. character. They were they weren't picky about the stone they used. They were sloppy. They would leave you know uh, they would leave like like patination on the. They wouldn't clean every face, so sometimes it had like a like a patina to it. And he was just like dismissive, not not like dismissive of like not the religion or the belief system. He just couldn't get excited about wow. a people that made that used cruddy stone to make a rather crude implement. The guy had been an engineer. He 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 liked the Folsom Point. To him, it was like, no, that's a good people. (laughs)
1: Was kind of his attitude, you
0: know. Think
1: about if you use that same idea and project it into the future of what people would say about us.
0: It's a judgment you make when you walk you're driving down the road, man. You see, you know, you see a nice house, everything's organized, nice, beautiful garden. Like there's a boat. Boat looks rigged up, ready to go. You go, it looks an industrious person you know and then you go by a place and everything's all falling down and and in disrepair and junk everywhere you most i'm not saying you most people make a a sort of passing judgment about what that person's um they're they're sort of like like how they feel about craftsmanship how they feel about organization how whether they're fastidious and tidy you know and and in a similar way i look at that point and i'm like holy cow man We're inferring a lot from that one. Just a beautiful point. point. Let's say someone somehow anthropological techniques get very so sophisticated that we learn somehow that the Folsom hunters uh, really yelled at their wives all the time. Okay, (laughs) terribly rude to their wives. I'd be like, oh man, I didn't. I, that kind of goes against my impression. Yeah, never meet based you, on the projectile points. Never, never meet your heroes,
1: Steve. You never want to meet your heroes. Based
0: on the projectile points, I find that very disappointing. Perhaps they were a little bit thuggish with their <laughs> lives. It's a very real
1: idea that how we manage our material things reflects some parts of our internal value system. Do you think that's fair? Do you think that we're coming to accurate conclusions when we infer this much about these people from the craftsmanship of their stone points? I figure it's pretty accurate and no doubt an interesting thought. Like I said before, Dr. David Meltzer of SMU literally wrote the book on Folsom. And before we get much further, we need to understand what a Folsom point looks like and how it's made. And it would probably help if you took a second and Googled Folsom point and looked at an image of one. Here's Dr. Meltzer describing what they look like.
3: So, Folsom points are some of the really wonderful examples of flint napping you will ever encounter. They tend to be mm, about—I'm going to do this in centimeters um, because I've been doing centimeters. We don't know centimeters, Dr. Meltzer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so if you were a Folsom Point, you'd be an inch and a half to two inches long, okay? Okay, there we go. Um, We're going to have to go millimeters, though, here, Clay, because (laughs) I can't tell you what two to three millimeters in thickness is. I understood. It's like an eighth of an inch thick an less inch. than a quarter oh much less than a quarter um, Thin. we might be we might be talking sixteenths uh make them about an inch wide, and uh, they have this very distinct uh flute. think of it as a 20th century bayonet, right, a groove up the face, and in fact, when they were first discovered, it was thought because when they were first discovered it was you know World War one was just a decade less than a decade old. It was thought that these were actually bloodletting channels, but then they realized that— For better penetration. Well, for better penetration, and then, you know, the animal's bleeding, and it just goes down that channel and out, right? Well, as it turns out, these points were hafted, by which we mean they were attached to spears, and the base of the point would have been anchored in the tip of a spear, and it would be wrapped and held in place— and the um, there might be some foreshafts or perhaps a notch at the top of the spear in which the point would be wrapped up. Oh, he's got one in his hand. I've got one in my hands. This is, uh, this is not authentic Folsom. And in fact, it's a replica of Folsom Point. Mm-hmm. But the base of the point would have been hafted or anchored into uh, the tip of the spear. It might have been wrapped by sinew. sinew. Uh, they might have used some sort of mastic to kind of glue it in there. But what that means is that the flute itself would have been buried inside the haft area, so it couldn't have been a very good bloodletting channel. Uh, These points were uh, beautifully symmetrical. Uh, They were often finely trimmed uh, with what we refer to as gentle sort of pressure flaking up Mm -hmm. and down the edge, quite sharp, and would be used for um, hunting. These are not necessarily points that often had multi uses. So, earlier Clovis points, we often see that they were used as knives as well as projectiles. These things are built to hunt. These are really this is a specialized point. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a point that is intended to bring down an animal. But a lot of the time, because it's so thin, its its thinness makes it fragile. uh, We often see impact damage. You know, when stone meets bone at high velocity, it breaks.
1: Dr. Meltzer just brought up the weakness of the Folsom technology. It's thin and it breaks easily. However, that's also its greatest strength. Thin points penetrate well, can be made very sharp, and are easily resharpened when the tips break. Devin Pettigrew is an anthropologist and got his PhD at the University of Colorado Boulder. His research is in experimental archeology span and he focuses on the tools and weapons of early hunter-gatherers. He's an expert on addles, and we're going to talk about those, but first he's going to describe Folsom points. Several times in this podcast, you'll hear us talk about Clovis points, and we'll describe them in contrast to the Folsom point, so it'd be good if we understood what they were. It's handy to think about the different style of points as different kinds of broadhead technology like cut-on-impact fixed blade heads or expandable broadheads. The Clovis technology is older than Folsom technology, and it's easy to see that Folsom was the next step past Clovis. Clovis is a partially fluted point, and basically about one-third of the base of the point had the slabs taken off the sides of it the removal of the sides is called fluting. Folsom points are fluted the entire way down the side to achieve maximum thinness on the point. You can imagine people going, well, if a little fluting is good, I bet a lot of fluting would be even better. If that doesn't sound like human behavior, I don't know what does. Here's Devin. Describe for me a fulsome point, like if no one had ever seen it, and you decided to use words. How would you describe okay.
2: it? Okay, I would say we're dealing with a lancelet style point. So you can think of like a, a lance head. It, it's uh, kind of long runs, and narrow. Yeah, long and narrow. It runs straight up the sides, and and it doesn't have corner knot It doesn't have notching in at the base. Okay, um, it's got a slightly concave base. They're usually thin, and they're made of high quality material. They're very carefully flaked, and then they have driven up the face. On both sides from the base, a big flute. And what this is, is it's a flake that runs almost the entire length of the point and just takes this channel takes out. Takes the
1: side of it. So if it's like a three inch, imagine a three inch point. Yeah. And you just could just take a saw and just cut a slab of the side of it off.
2: Yeah. If you, if you could just, uh, I would say take it, if you could take your point and take a gouge and just gouge out a nice channel. Yeah. Out of both sides. Both sides. Yeah. But so you have that, to do it with a that flake. That makes it thin. It makes them very. Thin. Would it be done yeah. with one motion? Yes. So I yeah, mean, they got inflection.
1: to get right yeah. one time.
2: Pop, hit it. Yeah, and probably what they had since they were doing the. I mean, this was a, a cultural, you know, what we call an industry, a stone tool industry. They had a specific method of doing it that they that everybody knew and that worked for them, and probably for. Clo- or Clovis points and Folsom points that were fluted. That probably entailed some kind of a vice or a way to hold the point tightly and then mm. make a very controlled strike, probably with what we would call indirect percussion, where you're actually taking the tool that's going to do the, the work of not driving off the flake, and you're taking another tool that you use as a hammer to, to strike that. Okay. So you can like set everything chisel. up. Like a
1: chisel. It'd be like if you're trying to knock a flake off a rock, you'd put a chisel on top of yeah. the rock and then clack it with yeah, a you, hammer. Yeah, you
2: can get the... Indirect Indirect percussion, yeah. Indirect percussion. If your your chisel, analog is right on because you could get the angle of it just right. You could put it right where you want it, and hold it just right angle, and then whack. Mm. That's probably how they're driving off those flakes, in you know, a very controlled fashion that was, you know, extremely. They had an art down to yeah. make these things.
1: The craft involved in making these points is undeniable. And I want us to be immersed into the process of making a fulsome point. I want to hear it. There's some real-world drama because of the investment of time and using the valuable material that much energy was expended to acquire. And the risky fluting process right at the end either makes or breaks the point. No pun intended. Seems like the Bear Grease podcast, there's a lot of puns. But I want you to meet my friend Rick Spicer. He's an experienced mountaineer and a bushcraft expert. He's one of the owners of a cool outdoor store in Fayetteville, Arkansas called the Pack Rat. Aside from climbing big mountains, Rick is a primitive bow hunter. He makes his own bows and naps his own stone points for hunting. I asked Rick if he'd be willing to try to make us a fulsome point, which he doesn't do very often, but he agreed to try.
4: Okay, so what I've got here are a handful of different uh, preforms, or bifaces is another term that they're often referred to as, and a preform is simply kind of like a first stage of a stone point that, uh, you know, an indigenous person, first people would have created that would have been lighter weight that they could have carried with them. And then from there, they could have further refined that more into mm-hmm. a specific tool. So this would have been, so this is like a three-inch point. This would have been like a big rock. Exactly. So they wouldn't have wanted to
1: carry all so that So they would extra have
4: gone stuff. to, you know, like in a, um, you know, alabates or, or a quarry, a stone quarry. They would have quarried this. And obviously stone's heavy. Like they don't want to carry any more than they have to. So they would have quarried this out. They would have done what's called spalling. They would have cracked off pieces of that and then from those spalls they would have further refined those down into these bifaces or preforms and then they would have hauled those off to their hunting sites and then a camp they would have further refined those into specific tools them out they, to a point. exactly
1: yep and so you have
4: some so you've already built these preforms for us today because that would have taken quite yeah, a bit of time to hone hours. Those down
1: tell me how you're going to turn that into a Folsom. Port.
4: Yeah. So that's, you know, where the rubber meets the road. Right. And so the thing see about if you're
1: a real Folsom, hire. right,
4: right, right. So the thing that's so unique about the Folsom is the fluting process. And basically what you're doing in that process is you're striking it at the base of the preform to remove a very large flake off of it. And you're thinning that point down to basically the maximum amount so that when you fit it in the foreshaft. shaft, it's very, very easy. You're basically just splitting a stick and sliding it into the end of it. Mm. And by removing these flutes, and what's really unique is the way that they are it's symmetrical. It's on both sides. And to do that on a Folsom point and not break the thing is really, really hard. So, how, so talk to me
1: about how they think they did that with the jigs? with
4: Yeah, so there's kind of three ways you can go about re- getting a flake to release on one of these types of points. One way is through direct percussion. Um, and it's the most simple, but it's arguably the most difficult. And basically, you're going to hold the thing in your hand and you're going to strike it with a hammer stone or an antler or something like that. And you're just going to try to knock the flake off. But there's so many things that can go wrong trying to do that, to get the angle right, to hit it in the right spot, all that type of stuff you end up breaking them a lot. The second way is going to be through indirect percussion, and that's where you use what's called a punch typically. You're going to put that on the side uh, or basically lay it on the platform and then hit that that tool with another tool, with the hammer. That allows you a greater degree of control over the angle and the striking surface, but it's still a lot to now you're working with like multiple things and trying to hold it all together, which is really hard. And the final way, and I think a a lot of, uh, you know, anthropologists and certainly nappers would agree that it's likely that they were using a jig of some kind. Now, modern nappers have man-made jigs that they use out of lumber and that sort of thing. But I have seen, I've never done this myself, but I've seen demonstrations where basically you're driving a couple of sticks into the ground. You're putting the point upside down and bracing it up against these two sticks, which provide a stable surface to press against. And then they're using a lever to sort of gradually apply pressure and basically like pop that flute off of really? the back. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very, like say, I, I don't have experience doing it. I've not used jigs before. I've always used either direct percussion or indirect percussion, but I also break a lot of points, you know, yeah. in the process. So... Yeah. With this, though, um, we're using heavy-duty tools at a late-stage point in the process. It's right, brittle. Where it's brittle, it's thin, and the likelihood of doing something wrong and busting the thing is really, well, really they, high. They
1: say that they, they estimate 30 to 40% failure, even with the fulsome yeah. hundreds and people. Well, let's do it.
4: Yeah, let's get, get it going. So I'm going to basically work away...
1: Rick is working on building a platform at the base of the point that will give him a specific spot to strike that in theory will cause the entire side of the point to flake off with one strike. The likelihood of failure seems
4: really high to me.
1: What are the chances this is going to be is going to work?
4: I'd say there's a 50% chance I'll get a decent flute on it. There's probably a 20-30% chance that I'll break it. And a ten percent chance that we're going to get a flute that's even <laughs> remotely close to a Folsom style flute.
1: So, I don't like your optimism. Yeah,
4: yeah. So the platform is ready to go. Again, this is a direct percussion method. So I'm going to take, uh, in this case, the copper billet, and I'm going to strike it uh, at a steep angle to try to get a flute to release down the center of this thing. Ah, hit it there again. That's what happens that broke it's the ear off, but the the, the yeah I'll tell you what I'm gonna clean it up just a little bit and what basically what this means now is we're gonna end up with a shorter point because I knocked the rear the one of the ears off yeah
1: his first hit broke the base he's gearing up for his second strike
4: here we go okay oh, wow that's Holy not bad it work, man. yeah you can see that if i flip it over there's the flute that's removed so there was no way i thought that was going to work
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh it's nice no it really really you you're holding this three inch long point hitting it with a big clubby looking yeah a copper, a hammer basically right and it takes off this like delicate flute off the side that's awesome When you see this process happen, it almost seems miraculous that this long flute just peels off with a single strike. But he's just halfway through. He's still got to do the other side. But I'll save you the stress and drama. Rick was successful at getting a partial flute on the other side. But it wouldn't have been considered a true Folsom-style point. Rick said it would be closer to the partial fluting of the Clovis-style point. And if you're interested in watching Rick make a point, I'll put a short clip on my Instagram. And you can also follow Rick at Packrat Bushcraft on Instagram. The biggest question that remains unanswered is why did they take the risk of such extreme fluting? The point would have killed animals without the fluting, but they employed this technology across vast geographic regions for 1,000 years. Think about this. What other technologies in human history have been used for that long? The wheel? The plow? We've been using some form of gunpowder and guns for a little over a thousand years. At the time, they might have thought about the fulsome point like we do gunpowder as an essential thing. Here's Steve and I talking about the longevity of the technology and entertaining a very interesting idea. The consistency that you see that is clearly handed down through human communication that spread across broad geographic distances for long periods of time, that these people were able to pass down values. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, they, they passed on a technique of a way to make a point. But think about the, like you and I are trying to do with our kids right now, Steve, is like we're trying to pass down a value system to them and all that's left of the Folsom Hunters is this piece of stone. Yeah. But there was a bunch of other stuff that came with that too. The culture, what they valued, what they worshiped, what they saw beauty in was was translated. And it was taught to that son, just like it was his ability to nap a Folsom point because it wasn't just like one generation. And yeah. it, it was thousands of years of people and they did it the same. And that's why that brings up an interesting point is... Why did they flute this, and i want, I want to hear your your thoughts on why they fluted it because it's clear that this was a difficult process. The advantages of it killing stuff are because that, that's the way we would look at it as hunters. It's like what's the advantage of this projectile point killing something more efficient so that my family eats rather than starves? Mm-hmm. And so that's a pretty heated debate what i, I there's an idea that is tossed out there, that it was non-utilitarian, that the point was fluted, that it was, you know, and and, and I'm not saying I buy it. I'm just no, saying no, I, I
0: like the idea. I used to like that idea too. I used to like the idea too. And and let's, let's just be fair and acknowledge right now. We don't know. We don't know. We ain't gonna find out. But hear me out. I, I used to like that too. Then I realized that there's a joke. There's a joke among anthropologists. If you don't understand, what do you do? You say that it must have had spiritual significance <laughs> or religious significance. If yeah. you dig a site and you find that there's five bison skulls at the site and the bison skulls seem to have been roughly arrayed in a circle, it must have had spiritual significance. Not that. Whatever, <laughs> whatever they were doing that day and how those carcasses were scavenged by dire wolves and dragged around or whatever happened, it just so happens that that's how it ended they just up. just laid there. Yeah. Or... That you're finishing up and your kids are messing around and they put them in a little pile, you know, that tendency to look at things and be like, huh, must have had spiritual significance. It's just, there's also just a lot of, who knows, a long time past. Now let me give you something on the converse side real quick. I could see the fact that they did it a certain way and they did it that way for a long time being a way to make you think that it must have had spiritual significance, right? But it could also be that these were a people who lived in extreme isolation at that time. Not that there, I mean, there were. There were people, there were, at the time of the Folsom Hunters, there were human beings stretched from Alaska to the southernmost tip of South America. But these people, these, these bison hunters out on the plains, might have been living in such a, a sort of cultural isolation that they had an idea, they had a thing they hunted, and the way they hunted it, and they went thousand years, whatever it is, Without someone coming in and being like, no, 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 you boys got it all wrong. Here's how you make a good project. Yeah, here's how you make a good projectile point. So maybe there's this the way they did it, worked for them, and they weren't subject to a lot of new ideas. And here's this like these people that had this, this lifestyle that they lived far longer, far longer than any notion of the United States of America has been around. They, yeah. they were at it for a long time. Yeah. Just me sitting here you know, in a chair, my valueless interpretation of it. Is that it was just a, it was a function of the equipment they were using.
1: Here we go again with Steve trying to completely rationalize the functional argument for the fluting of the Folsom points. Here he is with his final thought on making these things.
0: Another cool thing is that at certain sites they'll find where someone's making one and they break it, so they're in, they're channeling it and break it. There are museum specimens of a never used. Folsom point broken and lying next to it and matched to it is the channel flake that came out of it. Knocked the channel out, went to knock the other channel out, broke the thing, dropped it all. And just then done. at the end of the ice age, people who was, probably wouldn't have been unreasonable, they would have run into a one of the last mammoths thrown around. And then some dude today goes, Oh, here's a point. Oh, here's a channel flake. And they matched pairs. But that had that, to that's be upsetting. Yeah, that's I, I just can't. I think it's utilitarian, man. It, it just doesn't make sense. Just compare it to a Clovis point. The, the Clovis hunters who were using that landscape ahead of the Folsom hunters probably had, were probably after, had opportunities on much bigger animals because they were, you know, this is like, this is occurring at what we call the Pleistocene-Holocene transition. So the end of the ice ages, and you had this all this megafauna vanishing. Giant ground sloths, mammoths, mastodons are vanishing from the landscape. The guys before had a very beautiful, finely wrought point that was big. And then here's this, like, you, it just it's tidy. These big, huge animals start to vanish. And then who lives there next? People that were making a smaller point. Great point on the size of the Clovis points as
1: compared to the size of the animals they were hunting. But you'd think a guy like Steve would like to entertain a little more romantic thinking in his life. However, I think his point about its utilitarian design is well taken. But maybe it's not that cut and dry. It's possible that it could have been viewed as highly functional, but also
3: held significance
1: beyond that. Let's see what Dr. Meltzer has to say.
3: We actually don't know why they fluted these points. There's no particular obvious reason. With some colleagues, we have hypothesized that the way in which these things were fluted and the way in which these things were hafted to spears might have actually served kind of as a shock absorber in the sense that the waves of force would travel through. And instead of the point banging into the back end, uh, the base of the flute where it was thinnest, and again, you know, one to two millimeters thick, it would just crumble like a bumper on a car, right? Mm -hmm. The bumper on a car is intended to give way— it crumbles so your car doesn't break when you when you hit something the base of the flute was so thin that it might have crumbled and prevented the entire wave so the wave of force travels through it's going to rebound back but if the base crumbles all that energy is going to get dissipated and, and you, so, can re, you can you can
1: remake the that right, portion that broke that, off yep. and use it again exactly that is the most unique thing about these Folsom points is the mystery of the fluting. I read in your book where it's, it's been discussed that perhaps it was non-utilitarian, which means that it served no functional purpose, but was a cultural purpose. And I I would like to make a comment on that, Dr. Meltzer as a, as a bow hunter and as a hunter. When we see this throughout history, that, that cultures do distinguish themselves and establish identity through the way that they hunt we do it today yeah. I, I do it every day of my life right like the, the weapons that i used to hunt are part of my tribal identity of course i really like this idea that and, it, and it's kind of a romantic idea that these people would have been doing something that took an incredible amount of skill to do and actually jeopardized they say that there's a high percentage of failure when you get a point to the 30 to
3: 40% failure rate in manufacturing. So it's totally inefficient Absolutely, to flute a point. absolutely. But why the hell do humans do all the weird things that we do exactly. <laughs> that are completely non-functional? And to, and to, think <laughs> that,
1: to think that this, this style, this technology, this is essentially a technology yeah. that would have been passed down from generation to generation, and there may have come a point when a guy was like, why are you still fluting those silly things? They break every time. And, you know, at some point that shifted away from that technology, Absolutely. just like it would today. But, uh, man, so much mystery inside of a fluted, Folsom point.
3: Right. But, you know, there's hunting magic, too. You're going to go out there and, you know, you want to have your best weaponry. But, you know, you also want to have your distinctive points. Uh, you're going to make your stuff. You're going to be in charge of your gear. And, you know, there may be a bit of ceremony associated with going out on a hunt. Because, look, going after an animal that was that big and could be that dangerous, um, there's, there's two risks in hunting. One is the risk you're going to come home empty-handed. And the other risk is you're not going to come home at all because you're dead, mm. right? And so in some, in some projectile points at some sites, you see bits of red ochre, right? Right. They're putting, um, and it's. it may not just be sort of part of the mastic that's holding the point on, it may be that there were ceremonies in advance of the hunt. And everybody's got their own weaponry that they make their own particular way. One of the things that was really interesting to me at the Folsom site, which I could never possibly prove, but it's just one of those things that, ah, you know, I'll bet it's right. I look at the assemblage of the projectile points from that site, and I am convinced that I can identify at least three separate nappers based on the style of the points that they make. And how would you ever prove that? You can't, right? But I look at these things and I say, you know what? That really looks like the same person. Yes. And I'm not saying same guy. Who knows? You know, maybe the women were were making Folsom points too. Um, I'm willing to bet the same person made this point and that point And a different person made those two points Um, yeah and and think about it too if you want credit I don't know when you go out hunting with guys Mm -hmm. do you say it was my shot I had the kill shot Mm -hmm. Um, and you can tell because that's my arrow (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) yours is over there stuck in a tree Uh, (laughs) (laughs) so you would have been able to
1: distinguish yeah you know that's that is so unique even today amongst flint nappers is that it's a craft it's an art it's it's almost like a fingerprint Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Montana Knife Company was founded by Josh Smith one of the world's most experienced master bladesmiths. He's been making knives for 30 years. Made in the USA and manufactured locally in Montana. The knives come with a multi-generational warranty and free sharpening. Designed Tested and built by hunters, MKC is a hunting knife company first and foremost. They have the sharpest knives out of the box and the easiest knives to sharpen. And that is the dadgum truth. You better be careful with them when you get them, they are sharp. MKC is a fast growing company. They just hired their 55th employee and are looking to hire about 50 more in the next year or so. I've carried a lot of these Montana knives. And the one that I like the most is their Speed Goat, which is a lightweight hunting knife, just the right size. MKC knives sell out within minutes of being released. So head over to MontanaKnifeCompany.com. They have new knives for sale every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So check their website and sign up for their text and email alerts. That is the best way to find out when they have knives available. Use code BEARGREASE10 for 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the South. The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the OnX Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. OnX has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this spring. I wanted to ask all these experts the same question, so I've asked Devin, too, why the Folsom Hunters to their points. You might find some overlap in these guys' opinions, but they all bring a little different perspective. Here, Devin will go into the detail, the physics behind the design of the Folsom point. And he's the guy to know because he's done some real experiments using stone points on bison. The question of the
2: age is why did they use this style of point? Why do you think they did it? Part of it is um, you have um, a cultural momentum. <laughs> Aspect mm-hmm. where where tools evolve out of earlier tools. So before uh, Folsom, we have Clovis points, and that's when we start seeing uh, fluted bases. But they're not Clovis points are generally larger, and they're not fluting the whole base.
1: So this was an older technology.
2: Yeah, Clovis came before.
1: Yeah, in Clovis, they did not flute the entire face of the point. Yeah, usually just the not base.
2: Yeah, and then you see this this technique is kind of perfected, and with Folsom. They're just very concerned about, you know, making these points extremely well made. You know, I'd say part of it is just, you know, you can look at different cultures today and look at things that we make. And and some of us are, some cultures are more concerned with something that's functional. It doesn't have to be to look you know, perfect. If you think about like early Germanic flintlock rifles in the Americas, they were extremely well-made. There was an art to them. They mm-hmm. engraved them. They didn't have to do all that stuff, right. but they could. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. There was some cultural value assigned to yes. the, the aesthetic beauty of it. Yeah,
2: there's a social value to it. And the the key there to think of is that they could do it, right? They, they had the time and the resources available. It's not yeah. like it was you know, because they were engraving rifles that put their lives at risk for some reason. I see. So they they had the resources available and the time available, apparently, to make points that looked that
1: way. I want to hear why it was functional for these points to be this yeah. way. But you're saying that there was some. There clearly because of the craftsmanship of them, there would have been some just aesthetic value. Probably.
2: Yeah, we we can suspect that was probably the case. You know, wow. I mean,
1: so there would been there would have been pride in yeah. this point. Somebody would have been like, check this thing out. Yeah. Look, and they would have been like, really wow.
2: Nice I mean, if you look at some of those, you're like, wow. I mean, they really <laughs> I wonder what some. they called them,
1: Devin, because they sure didn't call them Folsom Points. Because no, they didn't. Folsom, New Mexico, wasn't named until like, you no. know,
2: sometime in the 1800s. <laughs> they they would have called them something, mysteries. wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. They would have had to have. Yep. Unfortunately, that's one of those mysteries. Wow. We'll never know. But yeah, I mean, some of those you look at, them I and you just know. Somebody put a lot of extra time in that than they really needed to. Mm.
1: So... It's an interesting thought to think that these people would have had a specific widespread name for this style of point. It would have been a common word, but it existed and disappeared before written languages appeared on the earth. We'll never know. But they sure as heck didn't call them Folsom points. As a matter of fact, Folsom, New Mexico, was named after the fiancé of the American president, Grover Cleveland. Her name was Frances Folsom. Man, she got more than she bargained for. And I'm about tired of people naming stuff after famous leaders or their girlfriends in hopes of gaining political collateral. You guys remember the Cumberland Gap, don't you? Naming conventions are weird and rarely just. Though human technology has changed, we know that human nature hasn't. And some ancient hunter may have named the dadgum point after his girlfriend. We'll never know. But we've got more important questions with more definite answers. Back to Devin. So why was this point so functional? Because yeah. it, had, it, had, it probably had some function too. Had to have.
2: Yeah. To answer that, I have to go in a little bit of about my the background of my research, which big part of it was these, what I'd call realistic experiments. Uh, and if you're familiar with Ed Ashby, you'll, you know, you're probably familiar with this because these are the kinds of experiments that he prefers to test hunting arrows. And what you do is basically you have a carcass of an animal, it's, um, we don't kill them, the ranchers kill them, they've just died. And then we perform a projectile experiment on them where we, we're throwing replica atletals and darts and shooting arrows and tracking the velocity, tracking where they've hit, and then butchering them with stone tools and then taking the bones and cleaning them. But we keep all the meat. And so that allows you to track you know, specific impacts to specific bones. You can look at the performances they penetrate and all of that. We've done one on a bison and included in that were big heavy darts, a couple of of atlatals that are big, strong throwers, stronger than myself. Donnie Dust, you may. Oh, yeah. he, he's a self-described modern caveman. Um, the problem we run into with the Clovis points is that atlatal darts, like I said, they're flexible. When you throw them, they, they flex, and they compensate for the arcing motion of the throw, and they actually continue to flex downrange. Okay. When they hit with a lot of uh, momentum, a lot of energy, that acts not only on the, the target, but back on the projectile. So you have to have a really well-designed, really robust shaft Uh, If you have any bindings, you know, where the foreshaft fits in, where the point is hafted on, all that has to be really well engineered. Yeah. And if you're hunting big animals, that's what you want. You know, Donnie was able to throw a point, that heavy ash dart, and hit a bison rib, and it fractured the rib in half and continued to penetrate into the vitals of the bison. Hmm. And we're getting, you know, penetration through and through that animal with these heavy darts.
1: Passing all the way through, like poking out the other side, entry and exit.
2: Yeah. So these weapons are powerful. Yeah. The problem is when they hit with kind of a skewed angle, you can have a couple different things happen uh, that's not good. The haft fails because the notches, the wooden notches that are holding the point in, snap. Okay. And you like you don't get any penetration. So, this, if, the, so if the point
1: impacts the animal at an angle?
2: Yeah, at a slight, slightly skewed angle. Gotcha. Um, and if, especially if it's hitting bone, that's the real problem. Because you have these animals. So you needed a broadside.
1: You needed to hit them like perpendicular to that bone.
2: You you would preferably hit them. Yeah. But that's not always going to happen just because of the nature of the weapon. Or you might have it that the point is dislodged from the haft and it's kind of turned sideways. Right. You know, breaks it through its bindings. It just twists out of the haft. Yeah. And you get failed penetration. That happened a few times. That happened with unfluted Clovis forms. Okay. When you flute these things, they're fitting... Kind of down deep into the notches yeah that does a couple of things first off, it reduces that lateral motion so that they're locked in there okay. with those those fluting channels and then the second thing it does is that those uh, flutes slim down the half yeah and if you're hunting a big animal you want an efficient projectile you know we know that as hunters this is something that I see archaeologists overlooking sometimes is if you're hunting big animals there's a real incentive to make an effective well designed projectile point. Part of what that that's going to entail is a slim haft because when the hafting part goes in, if it's big and bulky, that's when you see a lot of deceleration suddenly.
1: Okay. So a, a thinner point means there's more wood around the base of that point, yes. the haft, so that it's stronger when it impacts.
2: Yeah. Gotcha. Wood or we find these weird things called that people call bone rods. And actually there are there's at least one uh four shaft with the actual haft uh, the notch is cut for a, a point to fit in. I know of. I, I believe it's from Oregon, and that's made out of antler or bone, and that's that's ancient.
1: So they were trying to compensate for the wooden shaft breaking when it yeah, hits the. A, so they said, "Man, we're gonna we got to do something different," and they used a the antler yeah. tip.
2: There's a possibility that that some of those bone rods, those those kind of uh, slat like segments, were used in as notches. It, it would certainly make a, a more sturdy haft. It's an idea that comes out of these, these realistic experiments. You know, you're, you're trying to reverse engineer these things and use them in these trial and error experiments. You get, you get certain insights like this. The channels lock in the point, reduce lateral movement. And since you have a long haft, with the cl- case of Clovis points, you have a bit of blade sticking out. They have a lot of leverage to break those those hafting notches. And you want it to be oh, slim and you know good at penetrating. The way I think of Clovis and, and Folsom points is that they're coming out of this this tradition of lancelet points and where you you have things this way, you know, you, they fit down deeply into these, these four shafts. You want them to be good at, at penetrating. And so one way you can, you can try and resolve this issue is by fluting the base. And so maybe what's going on with Folsom is they're really trying to lock in those points. They're trying to make... Them durable. They're part of a composite, durable, uh, heavy shaft that carries a lot of energy, but is able to break through bones. You know th- that to me explains it. Yeah.
1: So by having the the flute go all the way to the tip of the point. Yeah. You can really shove that thing in deep. So that yes. would have meant there would have been wood way up on the point. Yeah. And there would have been blade
2: that would be below. Blade along the the margins of the the haft. Yeah, so they were one benefit there is that you support the the stone. It's not very flexible, obviously, and uh, you get these bending fractures. Well, like where would you put the about. sinew to attach the further down the base? They were grinding the bases so that they don't. You know, when you wrap it with sinew, when you do get those those um, skewed impacts or any kind of impact that pushes the, the point, you know, to the side and the half, it can sni- it can cut through its own bindings. So they ground the bases. So they would have put sinew like on parts of the blade. Up the up the base that was ground, and then you just have this transition where they're no longer grinding it. And so the forward section of the point is unground sharp.
1: Devin did a great job of explaining the details of the functionality of the hafting advantages of the Folsom-style point using his real-world experience. So now we've got an understanding of the broad picture, of the potential reasons why they implemented this radical technology. But here's an interesting question. When did they move away from this technology? When did they stop doing that? So there was a point when we know that they started fluting yeah. points.
3: And then when did the technology shift? After Folsom. So Clovis folks develop the technology and um, their fluting points. Uh, Folsom take it to really kind of an extreme. I mean, when you're taking a point that to begin with is only four millimeters or so in thickness, and then you're driving off a, th- a thin flake that may be just one to two millimeters, um, that's serious skill. So the technology kind of the pendulum swung really far. Yeah. That
1: yeah. happens all the time. Absolutely.
3: In everything, doesn't <laughs> a- absolutely. it?
1: Absolutely. So it's, eventually they were like, hey, guys, this isn't... We've gone
3: too far down that road. Let's back up. <laughs> turn I, wonder, turn I, around. I, I guarantee
1: you this happened because this happens in my life with my dad. My dad gives me a hard time about gear that I use, you know, because he used this kind of gear and I use this kind of gear. Right. I guarantee you there was some folsom grandpa who was like, gum, those young kids they quit fluting those points <laughs>
3: yeah 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 so the stuff that comes after Folsom is unfluted but it works just as well um yeah. which told you that fluting wasn't necessary because mm. you could do it you know for the next 10,000 years nobody was fluting points and they were still killing I animals I bet those
1: guys that started doing stuff different made fun of the old Folsom <laughs>
3: fluters <laughs> or just said look at all that stone you were wasting because 40% of the time you can't get it right
1: Wait a minute, fluting wasn't necessary? What's the whole point of this podcast? My romantic Stone Point dreams are crushed. And I'm intrigued by this idea of the shift to a new design and how that happened. I wonder how long it took. I wonder if it upset people. I wonder if it was a Folsom fluter's kid that started doing something different or an outside influence from another region. We'll never know. But it's probably not much different than the reasons you and I changed gear over time. Maybe we just got tired of the old stuff and wanted to try something new. That seems to be a trend in human history. Here's Steve and I talking about the technology transition. You know what's wild to think about is a Folsom hunter would have been walking across the landscape or would have been in a camp, a historical campsite, and would have picked up a Clovis point, which predated him. Yeah, And he probably would have been having, they probably had podcasts back then where the Folsom people talked about
0: the Clovis people, sure. like we're talking about Folsom. There are sites where post, post-Columbian, so when we use like pre-Columbian times, like like pre-contact times, there are post-Columbian Native American sites where in their collections of things were Folsom points. So they saw them as significant and old. Recognized it as something and kept it. Wow. And kept it among their things.
1: They had to have talked about the technology too because they would have seen the difference in technology and understood that something changed and they did something different than they used to. And they had to would have thought that what they're doing now is better than what those guys were doing or they would have done it like the
0: guys back then. Because they were shooting it out of bows. They were probably like, huh. That's not gonna fly good. That's not gonna work. <laughs> That's not gonna fly good out of an arrow. Out of a little thin little arrow. You'd have to think they would've looked and been like, Yeah, I could I could figure that out. Like I could, you know, I get what they were doing there, but it's not something I would make. Um yeah. not how we do it now, but at a time apparently, that was a good point. They
1: were like, those hillbillies <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So we've been focusing on the stone projectile point, but we haven't talked about what they use to throw them. Devin is an expert in addle addles. He's dedicated much of his research to them, and he's very good at throwing them. For us to finalize our layman's PhD, we need some intel on this primitive tool because they have been the primary hunting tool of humans longer than they haven't. Here's Devin talking about addle adult
2: So why don't you just describe for me what an atlatl is? The original word you'd pronounce it something like atlat, and that's from the Aztec language, not mm. what language. So we've we've anglicized it to atlatl. And
1: say it again. How would they have said it?
2: Atlat. Wow, yeah. just really short. Yeah, the last tl is pronounced like you put the tip of your tongue against the roof of your mouth and blow air around the sides. Atlat. And a lot of language, you know, mm. words in their language like Quetzalcoatl pronounced that way hmm. we've anglicized it out loud all and all it is really is a it's a lever to assist hmm. the body assist your your throwing the length of your throwing arm and uh, because you're you're lengthening out that throwing arm and of course we don't when we throw things we don't just like push them straight out uh, we throw with an arcing motion then the dart the spear which is we call a dart because that's in archaic English means a, just a light usually fletched spear, which okay. is precisely what they were. Um, so it would
1: be like a like what we would call an arrow except longer. Yeah,
2: except bigger. It's kinda like So made, it would
1: have fletchings on it and, and most of and them an dart yeah. would have fletchings, yeah. so it would have feathers that would guide the flight of it. Usually.
2: Yeah, not okay. all of them. You know, if you look at what uh, Native Australian people were using, they were using unfletched forms, and most of them are pretty big. So these things range in size from you know pretty small, just like five feet tall, to over thir- ter- thirteen feet tall. In some look, the arrows, the darts, the, the darts could be yeah. from
1: five feet to thirteen feet. Yeah,
2: so there's a huge range of variability in the weapon. But the dart has to flex because when you throw it, you're making this arcing motion. So it, basically, it's compensating for for that arcing motion. And maintaining a straight trajectory, and basically you you start off just as you would normally throw something with kind of the big muscles of your your shoulder and like putting your torso twist into it, stepping forward a little bit, and then as you come in to the throw, you turn your wrist over, and that final wrist snap is what gives a lot of the velocity to the dart. The, the,
1: the motion that you just made look like a pitcher throwing a baseball yeah precisely i mean it's,
2: or, or a quarterback
1: yeah. throwing a football yeah you know, the wrist snap that puts a spiral on a football or puts a precisely. twist on a baseball
2: yeah you think about a quarterback standing back there and then he just steps forward and smoothly throws right right to the target that's what you're doing you're casting this thing you cast the dart with the outlet on kind of a controlled motion if you look online and like any Almost any archaeology museum, you see this ridiculous depiction where a guy is holding one of these things down by his waist, and then he's like running in, and all this. There's all this body motion. Well, you can throw him that way for distance. That's not what you're going to be doing when you're hunting. Hmm. You know, you're you're standing there and maybe taking a little step forward and and just smoothly casting it right where you want it to go.
1: You know, it, when I think about an and someone hunting with it, yeah, it, it's almost hard to fathom how. You could be proficient enough to yeah for your food source to be right totally dependent upon your ability to be accurate. but then when I see you making this motion right here, it's like yeah. I'm pretty decent at throwing a football, right and it's because I've done it my whole life, yeah, and it's no different, is it? These people no, this no. was just an extension of their yeah. of their body, of their mind. They just
2: Yeah, it's you know, javelins one thing and there are ethnographic cultures that are really good with javelins and they're they're quite proficient hunting with them. But one one way we've we've come to think about this is it's easier for most people in society, more people in society to learn to use this and to put power in it without having to be, you know, big and strong or without having to, mm. to throw with some, you know, large or You know, big body movements. So if you're so if you're hunting deer, you know, elk, just imagine sneaking around with one of these things up and in the ready. And when you're ready to throw, it's just a smooth step forward and cast right to the target. Yeah, it is more challenging with a bow. You're you're stealthier. You know, you can shoot it from a crouching position. There's less body movement. So if you're hunting a swift, wary animal like a whitetail. It's it's just a stealthier weapon, but with an atlatl and dart, you know you can hunt medium-sized small animals like that. But after the bow comes in, it seems they continue to use it, particularly for large animals like bison in open mm. environments. Because these these darts, they you can make them quite heavy. They carry a lot of energy, a lot of momentum, and they're they're very powerful. So it's easy to make the weapon powerful, mm. which is hard to do with a bow and arrow fascinating stuff.
1: The simplicity of the atlatl is hard to argue with, but we need to clear something up. What is the timeline of usage between atlatls and bows? I've always wondered that. Devin's answer surprised me, and the complexity of that answer has to do with what he calls preservation bias. So that brings up a great point that we need to talk about is the timeline of an adalatl in a boat just it, yeah. give us a give us a time picture of this technology when it came in
2: yeah so we don't know quite how old the weapon is the earliest definitive examples which and when I say definitive we're talking about the parts of the actual adalatl themselves not the, the the projectile points is usually all we have to look at it's really right. hard to tell what you're looking at just from a projectile point, but the oldest definitive examples c- come from caves in Europe, and they date back almost 20,000 years. Wow! Uh, the weapons probably a lot older than that.
1: Well, when we're, when you're talking about archaeology, it's so it's always so fascinating because like so they found an that they think is 20,000 years old. You know, what's the chances that was
2: the first one that a human ever made? You know,
1: precisely. Probably didn't find that one.
2: Precisely. Yeah, you have preservation bias. That's that's always a problem with the earliest evidence. Preservation bias. Now that's a new word. I like it. Yeah, that's that's one of the the things archaeologists have to contend with is the fact that when you're walking around as a hunter gatherer doing things on the landscape, how much of the stuff that you do and make and and leave behind, like the, how many of the hunts that you've you've undertaken are going to stick around so archaeologists can find them twenty thousand years later? Very right. few of them. So you have mm-hmm. to build up enough culture on the landscape, enough people doing things that eventually you leave, You start to leave signs behind. So you're saying that
1: maybe we're building these narratives off of stuff these people were doing that maybe wasn't even a major part of their life. I mean, I, that's not what we're talking about with the ad loud, but that's possible because like, we're only finding the things that could be preserved and so maybe that little sector of their life was, maybe was important, maybe it wasn't.
2: Yeah, it's just something they left behind and, and we happened to find it. <laughs> but there
1: was other stuff they were doing that was not capable of being left behind. Precisely, yeah. That could have been massive.
2: Yeah, I was talking to students the other day about those early footprints in New Mexico. And I said, how many of the, f- you've walked around on the earth, how many of the footprints you've, you've left behind do you think would last, you know, over 20,000 years? And they're like, none. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's just all, they did all these things, you know, they made uh, nets out of plant fiber and hide clothing. And it's extremely rare that you get that kind of evidence. And I mean, even the, the hard artifacts you leave, like stone tools, they need to be in places where the site gets preserved and it's, you know, not too buried but it doesn't get washed away by a river. You know, there's all these variables that go into uh, preservation of archaeological sites mm. and then allows us to find them. So when did the, when
1: did the bow come in?
2: So Adelao has been around
1: for at least 20,000. Yeah. When, when was bow technology?
2: There's pretty good evidence for the earliest bow technology about 70,000 years ago in southern Africa. So the, the bow is older than the Adelao? Are according to our evidence, really? Yeah,
4: it's, okay. which is kind of funny.
2: The bow didn't spread rapidly. Uh, While well, we're looking at our projectile points that are uh, strikingly similar to historic ethnohistoric projectile points used with bow and arrow technology in Africa, and they have all this, all the signs, you know, of, of impact damage and and residue analysis and all that. To so suggest, we're basing this totally off the size of the point? Well, the size of the point, the, the damage that they have incurred striking some hard object. Wow. Um, the microscopic wear. So there's macro and microscopic wear. You know, macro being with the naked eye. Microscopic, if you lo- look at it under a microscope, you can see like impact striations from where they've penetrated something. Residues left behind from the hafting where they were hafted. Mm. And, and definitely the size is very important. But if you look at these these points, they're very much like what people were using up to uh, the historic period in southern Africa.
1: But in North America, the bow didn't come along for a long time.
2: There are suggestions that it was appearing in the Arctic five thousand years ago or or more. but you know again, we're just looking at at point sizes mostly and point styles. so we're not dealing with definitive evidence by two thousand years ago, though it has entered down into and this what, what caused it to actually start to spread is tricky because clearly people were connected for a long time, you know, from the far north into the, the middle of the continent. But it, is, it finally started entering into the middle of the continent around 2,000 years ago. So this is a long time after
1: it started back over in Africa. So Precisely. the technology
2: just spread. Or yeah.
1: Did, did it spread? Do we, do we know that it would have spread from human to human contact, like sharing technology? Or yeah. was it convergent- did two yeah, people have the same idea at the same time in different yeah. places?
2: Yeah. Was it disseminator or was it independent evolution or independent ev- invention of the technology and evolution of the technology? That's a really hard question to answer. <laughs> um, what, so we're looking at projectile points mostly. And we do have, in North America, we have atletal artifacts dating back the the oldest complete complete preserved atlatl is 5,000 years old. A little bit older than that from Nevada. Uh, and we have other artifacts from the atlatls themselves going way back to the Pleistocene. The hooks of the atlatls made of mammoth tusks. We don't have that for bows. You know, okay, you start to see... A, a
1: bow is pretty much made out of organic matter. Yeah. The whole thing. So, yeah, wood so and, gonna rot. and sinew. And, so the yeah. only the reason we know about atlatls is because they had a part of the atlatl. The yeah. hook was made of something that was organic matter but harder
2: yeah like a bone yeah osseous bone or antler so uh, these were there are some mammoth tusks or mammoth ivory hooks that have come out of deposits in florida and then we have wooden examples preserved later on so occasionally you do get wood preserving okay Uh, that's when you have either extremely dry conditions or you're lacking oxygen you have to have either water or oxygen
1: Devin continues on as we try to understand the transition of technology from Adaladles to bows in North America. Or was the transition even that clear-cut?
2: Around 2,000 years ago, in some places, you have the sudden appearance of these really small points that look much more to us like arrow points, but what right. we'd have on an arrow. And in some cases, they're brand-new styles. Hmm. When we see that, we think, okay, this is being introduced by another culture and they may be trading the technology or they, it may be another group that's moving into the area. Occasionally you also find that the older dart point styles are being now replicated in smaller in the smaller styles. And you get these two populations where you have a bimodality, what we call bimodality, where you have um, two like size populations. You have like a big size population that, that contains the dart category. And then a smaller arrow population. Hmm. And a lot of times they continue contemporaneous for, you know, a thousand years or more. Wow. So they're th- yeah.
1: Both the addle Addle and the archery technology use used side by side. Yeah. U- so used these together. These people would have chosen a different weapon for a different type of hunt, perhaps.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. You know, there there are sites there was a site I was looking at. It's in the Great Basin in this this uh sand dune area where they they'd driven bison up out of the river valley and into this the sandy area where they'd gotten bogged down and that's where the hunters ambushed them and they ambushed them both with the bow and arrow and and the atlatl dart because both at the same time yeah because both sides of the point i wonder if uh
1: i wonder if the archery guys the traditional archery guys were giving the atlatl guys a hard time yeah
2: or vice versa yeah (laughs) right come on you're gonna use an atlatl yeah it's what grandpa it's what great grandpa used Tradition, <laughs> I bet they did. I, yeah. Honestly, you
1: know, as I yeah. as I hear the stories of technology of yeah. points and styles of points, yeah. I look at that today in our archery world or our yeah. hunting world where there's there's different st- different technology, different ways to hunt gives identity to different groups. Yeah, you're know, like I'm a bow hunter. I'm yes. a traditional bow hunter. I, I use yep. this type of broadhead, and he uses that. Like we yeah, always used weaponry among thousand other things to build personal identity. Yeah. And so I just can't help but think that the yeah. the the archery guys were they weren't just absent of thoughts about the guys that were using adlatls.
2: You know, there's all sorts of potential going on there. Maybe they had some slightly different tactics going on, but but I think it's perfectly, you know, viable to say how we do it today, we definitely build identity around these different weapon systems and that's that's really important and that's probably a part of the the conservatism of hunting technology and you know there are multiple times in which in history people have uh, conserved older hunting technologies and preferred not to to take on a newer technology yeah uh, one of the prime examples is is polynesia because they they used javelins that was their primary projectile weapon and they had the bow but it was mostly a toy or for hunting like rats really but, yeah but they they fought and hunted with javelins, and they just and they just hung on to it. That was that was even what though they the preferred. rest of
1: the world shifted to archery and other things. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I mean the bow is in northern Australia as well, but most people in Australia used either the atlatl or uh, Woomera is one of the native words there for it or javelins yeah we kind of we tend to think of things from this technological deterministic perspective when a new technology comes on the scene everyone's going to adopt it yeah that's not necessarily the case you know there's there's a number of contexts in which you would hang on to an older technology
1: you know i think about adopting new technology in modern times probably the biggest deterrent for me like if you if there was some new big major archery technology yeah. I would be like, why do I need it? What I'm doing works fine. Yeah, precisely. And so it's just like, yeah. I, it might go for a couple generations before my yeah. ancestors were like, okay, we're going to do this because they find
2: some reason it's better. You think of it this way, like you know how to use a shotgun or, or a, a bow really well. A new technology comes on the scene. It may have better ballistic properties, but turns out it's a lot harder to make it or it's a lot harder to maintain it for you because you could just okay. buy it it's a lot harder to maintain it and it's just kind of a pain to deal with you know yeah like bows and arrows are they're great but they're kind of i think of as being high strung they're Pun intended. they're under t- yeah exactly they're under tension they break when they break they're no good and they're harder to make they're harder to maintain it's harder to make the string mm. but if you have an uh, addle we- addle was just you're not going to break that thing no It's it's very simple. Um, It's not you're carrying it around on the landscape. It's not under tension. It's ready to go at a moment's notice. But it's not under tension. It's not getting worn down from being strung. Uh, Easier to make, easier to maintain. Yeah. So if it works for you, why adopt something new?
1: You just feel like a bow shows up in your camp, and then everybody wants it. Yeah. Six months later, adadles are in the trash. Right. And everybody's (laughs) got a bow. Life moved a little bit slower, didn't it? Well, I feel really good about the ground we've covered with the Folsom technology and understanding the history of bows and Adeladles. Don't let your kids forget that they're here today because your ancestors used Adeladles to kill critters and feed your ancient family. That is a fact. As we come to the end of this Folsom series, I want to bring it back to the original question that we started with. Why does any of this stuff matter. You know, it blows my mind. Human life is so weird. Yeah. In that we live in 2021. We drive cars, but we're we're trapped into the present and it's so hard for us to fathom yeah. that there were people wandering around this place that this was
2: how they lived by these these tools that we're talking about part of your daily life when
1: i find these stone points in my front yard yeah uh, if, if my if anyone in my family is home i try to get them to come outside with me to look at it yeah in the ground and and we pick it up and we say the dude that touched this last yeah was planning to cook his dinner over an open fire number one number two he made this, and they were they had to provide for their families with this stone point. That's a fascinating thought, but it's such a healthy exercise. I think.
2: Yeah, the past is essential. I mean, th- this is what our identities are constructed of, and our understanding of, of the world and how it works is derived from the past. In fact, uh, one of the things I I always tell students is the past is so potent that in World War II, the Nazis created a division of their government to to construct this view this history of the Aryan race. And they reinterpreted all of this archaeological evidence. They went to mm. Peru and they reinterpreted the archaeology and they said, this archaeology is the archaeology of the Aryan people. Of course mm. it was all completely fabricated, but that's what they you know, that was a big part of their ideology and what allowed them to do mm. what they did, all the terrible atrocities they did, to convince people that this is right. So you they, know, that's they how understood
1: that history was gonna play a major part in the yeah. the modern culture they were building.
2: Yeah. Archaeology is extremely potent stuff. You know, it's like it's you know, really powerful and you have to get it right. In a time when it's it's hard for
1: people to even be able to track back a couple of generations in their family, which is kind of bizarre that yeah. we can't because we have this, you know, in the last thousand years, we've had the ability to record history. I mean, even just the advent of yeah. paper and, and printing presses and writing stuff down and written language. And we yeah. could, we can could record all this stuff, but typically people don't. I mean, people yeah. have a hard time learning what happened to their families a hundred years ago.
2: Well, it's there, you know, the, the history, even if they're not looking for it, it's there and it's what's forming who they are.
1: man right at the very end in the last sentence after hours of conversation, we find the answer to the question we started with wrapped in a cute little bow. Why does any of this matter? History is forming who we are regardless of our awareness of it. Even if George McJunkin hadn't found those bones, that day in that box canyon would have shaped our identity as humans today many times i've expressed my interest in identity and the factors that influence it certainly the Folsom hunters would be a part of the puzzle of our macro identity as humans as much as many of us would like to think we're independent free-thinking beings that's kind of a facade there are parts of our past that are fundamental and architectural and can't be changed like these ancient humans being hunters, being meat eaters, and procuring their livelihood through craft and skill in interacting with the earth. In a time when the very identity of what it means to be human is up in the air, the Folsom hunters give us an indisputable anchor point and identity that might help us put perspective on our own lives in modern times. You have to figure out what that means to you, but I feel like I know what that means for me. It makes me marvel at human life in 2022, and it puts perspective on my problems and struggles, and it makes me want to do all I can to keep my life simple. I'm forever grateful that I was born when I was and that I'm alive in 2022. I don't want to go back and be a fulsome hunter. But I do want to look back at those guys and glean some inspiration, some identity, some hope, and some just straight-up grit from those people. Man, Folsom hunters, pretty wild. I can't thank you enough for listening to Bear Grease. We've been on this long series about Folsom, and we're about to switch it up, and we're going to talk about ducks. In the next podcast and maybe even some squirrels 2021 was an incredible year for this podcast and i personally learned a ton thank you guys so much for following along and supporting bear grease hey from all the people of the bear grease render crew and all the people at meat eater we wish you a very happy and prosperous new year
0: They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.
1: Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance access to deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a Snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order.